so we don't get any interference. In fact, you probably won't get a signal down here anyway, but turn it off anyway. Um, firstly, let me introduce myself. My name's Professor Michael Cox. I'm in the Department of International Relations. I also happen to be a director or co-director, not of the LSE, too tough a job, uh, but of a think tank foreign policy centre here, which is called Ideas, which tries to bring policymakers and academics and academics and journalists uh, together. This, however, is an LSE public lecture this evening, I should point out very, very quickly. Um, on November the 6th, the US presidential elections are going to be decided. Now, one thing we can, I think, be absolutely certain, neither of the two candidates will admit, uh, will admit to something uh, we will be talking about tonight. <laughs> um, the possibility, or possibly the inevitability, or probability, that the United States may indeed be in decline. Indeed, the D word has become the unmentionable word in American domestic and certainly in foreign policy discourses. He himself mentioned, I think, this morning on the Andrew Marr program. The unmentionability of the decline word is unsurprising at one level. After all, America's identity, its view of itself in the world, is very much bound up with the notion of its own primacy, of being number one. Who wants to be number two? Duh. Um, at another level, it is very surprising uh, that it isn't being debated because this is not exactly a new debate. Uh, no, no critique of any originality on your part. Eh? Um, there was a long debate I'm old enough to remember in the 1970s following Vietnam when uh, I argued and many people argued then, 30-odd years ago, that America was in a post-hegemonic phase, that America was becoming an ordinary country and facing all the sorts of problems we're talking about today. Then in the 1980s, more precisely in 1987, if you remember, the British historian now at Yale, the historian Paul Kennedy, published the great book of his called The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. And in his 1987 volume, the publishers said, you can't keep talking about Portugal and the Dutch. Nobody in America is interested in them. Please put America in. And he did, and he sold 25 million copies. Um, in which he argued the case then again, in, with lots of footnotes, and with great skill, as Paul would always do, that America was facing a relative decline over the long term. So it's not a new issue. So I suppose you might say, here we go again, third time lucky. Um, to reflect on this, on this long-standing debate and the issues as they're being reflected and discussed today, uh, the LSC is delighted um, to welcome uh, Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Uh, he's worked for the FT since uh, 1995, and he told me as we were coming down, the, I think before then, or coinciding with that, he was also speechwriter to Larry Summers, then the US Secretary of Treasury under, under the Clinton administration. Um, he's been with the Washington Bureau of the FT since 2006. And as I said, you may have heard him this morning on the Andrew Marr program. <clears throat> the first time I heard Ed say what he's going to say tonight, although in a different place and a different time, was in Texas, down in College Station a few months ago, and Ed got out alive. Um, and he'll tell you more about that in a moment. Talking decline in Texas about America is sometimes not a very safe thing to do. Surprisingly, I nearly everybody agreed with him. I was actually surprised. But anyway, it's time to start thinking America and the spectre of decline. Ed, it's wonderful to meet you here and here again. 
to reflect on these issues before the LSE. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Michael. What Michael forgot to add was that what we were doing, I think it was off the record at the time, but what we were doing in College Station at AMU in Texas was playing war simulations <laughs> with the National Intelligence Council. And I think you played Saudi Arabia, or was uh, it? No, 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 no. Oh. I played Luxembourg. In oh, okay. <laughs> Some, I played India. Whoever you were, we were at loggerheads. <laughs> um, and it was an event full of, you know, intelligence people, scholars, um, diplomats. Um, and, um, and other luminaries and somehow I found, found my way into this crowd um, and at the end of which I gave something approximating the speech I'm um, about to give you and was astonished afterwards and during the Q&A session to, to be told that I was too optimistic um, because, because the line that I have whenever I give this book um, to an American friend uh, is one Prozac per chapter <laughs> Um, and I, I'll maintain that line in Britain, in Britain as well. Um, uh, let me just give you two brief um, caveats before I get onto the meat of what I want to talk about. Um, the first is that this book isn't quite as depressing as it sounds. Um, in the um, otherwise very generous cover review I got from the New York Times uh, in, in the US a few months ago, um, the reviewer said instead of calling this time to start thinking it should be renamed time to start drinking um, and uh, it, isn't, it isn't quite that depressing but I do, I do think that at, at a stage where um, America is in a fairly um, uh, breast beating um, um, frame of mind uh, most notably in the two presidential conventions in Charlotte and Tampa that I attended recently there was an extraordinary amount of exceptionalism. Every speech began with City on the Hill, particularly at the Republican, but also at the Democratic Convention. Every speech mentioned that America is the greatest country in the history of the world. And I kept thinking of Mark Twain, um, saying it, don't make it so. Um, and I think it's, it's very important um, uh, you know, not to um, parachute um, saccharine, Hollywood-esque endings onto a thesis such as mine because the trends are fairly stark some of them are fairly bleak and if America doesn't alter many of these trends some of them are unalterable, the rise of others which is a good thing, but if America doesn't alter some of the things that it's within its power to alter um, then it's not going to be a Hollywood ending it's going to be um, a slightly more sort of cinema noir, noir um, um, fade out um, and so I didn't parachute a, a Hollywood ending onto this book. Um, the second caveat I wanted to give you um, is one that I normally give to American audiences, which is to um, note that my accent is a foreign accent and that this is bound to raise some suspicions about my motives. Um, um, and, and then to go on to say I am not anti-American. I might be un-American in the tone of the message that I'm giving, but I'm not anti-American. Um, you're a British audience, so I don't need to make this caveat. Uh, I nevertheless will, um, which is to say that in America, in recent years, there's been, um, and in, over any decade of its history that you care to choose, there's been fellow um, Brits 
who've inhabited one end of either end of the spectrum, either over-adulatory uh, towards America, and we can think of recent prime ministers urging America onto wars of choice. We can think of Harvard historians um, urging the United States to take up the baton as the last self-conscious bearer of the English-speaking pe peoples uh, in the world. Um, to the other end of the spectrum, you mentioned Paul Ken Kennedy, um, a British historian at Harvard, not the one I was referring to, um, who um, was uh, lampooned by the late Samuel Huntington, um, who defined an American declinist not as somebody who describes America's decline, but as somebody who actively wishes for America's decline. And I think that was very unfair on Paul Kennedy, but it does sort of give you an idea of the freightage that comes with the term um, decline. And so what I tell American audiences, and I'm going to repeat this to you because I'm not insincere in this, is that um, as long as it's not a movie starring Mel Gibson, um, I am uh, always with the colonials against the redcoats when I see this depicted on the screen. And if I'd been around in 1956 when President um, Eisenhower pulled the plug from British power, essentially, over the Suez Crisis, um, I would like to think I would most definitely have, have applauded that move. Um, so that, that's the health warning I give to uh, American audiences. Um, now, the word decline, as Michael mentioned, has been very much on American lips in the last two, three years. Um, excuse me a second. Um, most pointedly, um, from Barack Obama um, in his State of the Union speech last January, uh, where he said, anybody who talks of American decline does not know what they're talking about. And in my case, he might be right. Um, but the reason he said this um, was because Mitt Romney was very clearly pinning on Obama the label declinist-in-chief, apologist-in-chief, leading from behind, being un-American. Um, but what he picked up on, more interestingly, is a book by Robert Kagan, a neoconservative. Um, Europeans are from Mars, um, Americans are from Venus, is his most fa um, famous work. But more recently, a book by him called The Myth of America's Decline. And Obama had picked up on this book um, and been very influenced by it and took some of the material um, and included it in the State of the Union address. Um, and so that piqued my interest. I then went and quickly read this book. Incidentally, there are three books on the market um, at the moment called The Myth of America's Decline. Um, and uh, I looked at this book, and the book begins with the premise that America's share of the global economy has remained, in Bob Kagan's words, remarkably constant at 25%, at roughly a quarter of the world's economy since the late 1960s. Um, and that just didn't seem right to me. So I checked with the IMF, and I got the IMF to produce the numbers on all three measures, market-based, purchasing power parity, and I forget what the third was, but there are many ways of cutting this. And the consensus was the best measure on the market exchange rate-based at the time measure um, was uh, that from 1969, which is when Bob Kagan starts um, his, measure, his comparison, America had 36% of the world economy. By 2001, it had dropped to 31%. Not much, given that this is 32 years 
um, and, and how fast Asia, most of Asia was rising in that period. But between 2001 and 2011, um, it's fallen to uh, little more than 22%. So from 31% to 22% in little more than a decade is an extraordinary, in fact, historically unprecedented um, dilution of economic weightage. Um, and assuming that there is no great, um, there is no great um, cataclysm um, uh, that, that um, derails China, India, and the other BRIC countries, we, 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 we should expect to see America, in the natural course of events, um, to drop to something like a fifth of the world economy and or a little bit more than a sixth of the world economy by the mid-2020s. It's not really a question of whether, it's a question of when, and we can debate on the time frame. All of this is a relative economic decline, quite consistent with Americans getting wealthier. Um, in just the same way that Britain in 1900 remained, you know, the centre the, the center of the world, um, you know, had a life expectancy a quarter of a century um, below what we have now, had a literacy rate way below what we had now, we're all way better off than we were when we were supposedly bestriding the globe. So none of this is, none of this is a, a disastrous scenario. Relative economic decline is a very natural thing. Um, uh, but what we are experiencing, the scale, the speed of um, what we are experiencing is unprecedented. And um, I'll cite here the... Um, brilliant um, Nobel Prize winning Canadian economist Michael Spence, his book, uh, The Great Convergence, um, which talks about the fact that really only 15% of the world um, is to, has been developed since the colonial era, since um, 1700. The, the industrialising portion of the world, the West, latterly including America, and that inevitably, maybe belatedly, the other 85% are catching up. Um, and uh, this is, of course, a good thing. Economics is not a zero-sum game. Other people getting richer does not make us poorer. Um, it makes um, us richer because it expands the markets for our products. Um, uh, but what it does do, um, and I, I'll get on to this um, in, in a little bit more detail in a moment, is it provides um, increasing competition um, for our less skilled labor force, for the less skilled portions of our labor force, and, and, and brings a lid down on their income growth. If they're not getting upskilled fast enough, then their incomes are going to be going down pretty fast. And that is what is happening in the United States. Um, uh, so that's really the context um, uh, for, for, for this book. Relative economic decline is not a bad thing. It's an inevitable thing. The Great Convergence is an, a, an enormous global positive event. Um, because so many hundreds of millions of people are being lifted out of poverty. Um, and yet, it's entirely controversial. In fact, um, it's, it's denied um, by the preponderance of the American intellectual establishment. There's a kind of intellectual ostrich position that makes it um, uh, not quite suicidal, but very dangerous to admit relative economic decline is happening and will continue. My book's not about that. I don't think this is controversial. It is happening. It will continue to happen. My book is about um, the um, kinds of self-inflicted damage that the American um, uh, policy-making elites are, are, are adding to in this process, um, that through the action and inaction of Washington, um, relative decline is being turned into something worse. 
Um, and that's really the focus of, of my book. And it's why, at least in the UK edition, it's called The Spectre of American Decline. Um, so let me give you three sort of core arguments to this. The first is the political and economic polarization that's going on in America. Um, most of you will be aware of the fact that there is middle-class income stagnation in America. Um, you'll probably be aware of the fact that um, two-earner households today um, earn roughly the same in real terms as single-earner households um, were earning in the 1970s. So, you know, both husband and wife have a job, um, whereas the wife didn't generally typically have a job in the 60s and 70s, um, and yet between them, they're only earning roughly the same as what the male breadwinner was earning 40 years ago. Most of you will probably also be aware of the fact that the um, Bush uh, um, administration, the business cycle that occurred between 2002 and 2007, the last full business cycle, the median household income was lower at the end of it than at the beginning of it. That has never happened in history before. And of course, the overall, the aggregate economy was much bigger. It was about a quarter larger in 2007 than 2002. But the median household was poorer. Now, we use median as the exact midpoint where 50% um, are richer, 50% are poorer, because averages distort. So Bill Gates walks into the pub down the road. Um, everybody, on average, is a millionaire. That's obviously a little bit distorting. The median, the median gives you a sense of what's happening to most people. Um, so people are generally aware of that in terms of the Bush business cycle. What they're less aware of is that this current recovery, inverted commas, that America has been going through now for almost three and a half years. It began in June 2009. Each year the middle class is poorer than it was the year before. So median income declined, um, as you would expect, during a recession, during those 18 months um, of late 2007 to mid-2009, by about 4%. Um, since then, it's declined another 5%, which means that the typical American household is 9% poorer today than in 2007. The economy as a whole is larger now, unlike Britain, which is actually, uh, it hasn't yet regained its pre-recession size. America has regained its pre-recession size, yet most people are poorer. Um, so this is something that I like to refer to loosely as the Latin Americanization of the United States. Um, namely the incredible skewing of incomes, the extraordinary skewing of incomes, now on most measures worse than the Gilded Age era, um, in terms of the proportion at the top, what they're getting in terms of, of, of the fruits of growth. Um, and just to give you a little bit of illustration, this is the only really statistical um, area of, of my address, but... Just to give you a little bit of an illustration, the first full year of America's recovery was 2010, and the U.S. economy grew by 3%. Um, and of that um, 3%, the top 1% um, got 93% of it. Um, and the bottom 90% um, took away a, a, minus, a minus sign. So the top 10% took more than... The, uh, as much as the bottom 90% lost. Um, the top 0.01%, that is the top one in 16,000 families, 
um, took uh, just under 40% of the growth that year. Um, in the first full year of the previous business cycle, that 0.01% um, took uh, about 25%. Um, that was in 2002. In the full, first full year of the business expansion before that, 1992, um, they took about 15%. So you can see 15%, 25%, 40%. A dramatically deepening trend here, which I call Latin Americanization. is a rather ugly term, but I think it's an appropriate term. And the irony here, of course, is Latin America is actually de-Latin Americanizing in this respect. There is a great surge of middle class um, growth going on in countries like Mexico and Brazil. And their Gini coefficient, the measure of inequality, is going south. It's going in the right direction as America goes north. Um, so um, the skewing of incomes is unprecedented. Um, it's not to do with this depression, with, the, with this recession. It's not to do with Lehman Brothers. That exposed um, how bad it was um, for the middle classes who lost their access to easy credit, who lost their right, the rising values of their homes, all of which made up for the fact they weren't getting good income growth. Um, but it didn't cause it. This goes, goes back three or four decades. Um, uh, now, there is a link between this and what's happening in the political world in Washington, in America as a whole. There's a polarization going on in the middle class. There's a missing middle, as economists call it. As the middle-skilled jobs go, high-skilled people are doing well. Um, Low-skilled people, are un you know, they're not being sacked. They're not doing well, but they're not being sacked because you do need janitors, you do need people to... Um, you do need nurses, you do need uh, um, food preparers and so forth. They're not doing well, but they have jobs. The middle is gone. It's going very, very rapidly. And it's going in politics as well. America has never been this polarized. Um, uh, the top, that top 16,000 families, um, well, the richest 200 of them, um, amongst whom you have the Koch brothers, you have Sheldon Adelson, um, the Las Vegas gaming um, billionaire, the top 200 of them are spending more on this election uh, than the remaining 320 million Americans combined. Um, so if you have Sheldon Adelson's spending $70 million on this election, um, the Koch brothers, I think, are spending something approaching that. Um, the, there is an extraordinary oligarchic demonstration of what I've been describing to you that is happening in the economy, is happening in politics. And again, if this doesn't give you the whiff of the hacienda of the Latin American um, political system, um, I don't know what will. Uh, of course, the, the classic Latin American pattern is great destabilizing lurches from orthodoxy to populism and back again that make sensible governance very, very difficult to achieve. And I would argue that I don't need to make a particularly strong case that this is how Washington um, has been behaving in recent years. I feel that I probably have to make this more strongly in Europe because things are just so screwed here that um, it, America probably looks relatively okay. Um, but um, uh, it really isn't okay. And the, um, the distemper and the bitterness and the sort of armed camp feel that you've got in the American system is something that system is not designed to cope with. That system um, will, will and has come to a halt because of the polarization. Um, we haven't had a budget in the United States for four years. 
Congress cannot agree on a budget. Basic things like a new infrastructure bill, um, uh, renewal of um, uh, research and development spending, um, education grants, the stuff that, of the future that will make sure America remains competitive is not being done in this Congress. Um, and if you look at the fiscal cliff that we're going to have, whoever is elected on November the 6th will immediately hit um, in the aftermath of the election. Um, the only thing so far that the American parties have been able to agree on um, is to freeze what's known as the domestic non-defense discretionary budget, which in plain English um, is what I call the tomorrow budget. It is infrastructure, research, development, education. And it accounts for about 10% of the budget. It's the smallest portion of the budget. The rest, defense, social security, interest on past debt, Medicaid, Medicare, that's untouched, that's growing. This is frozen. Tomorrow is frozen. Yesterday is continuing to grow. Um, and I, I think that gives you a, a, an idea of which direction the American political system is looking in. The second, um, this, the second sort of key feature of um, the uh, American dysfunction that, that um, we're all seeing um, is a decline in competitiveness. Because, of course, you can have a screwed-up political system, but if Silicon Valley is still Silicon Valley, then what is there to worry about? And if it doesn't matter what, how you distribute wealth, if America is in the aggregate growing, then it's maintaining its competitive position vis-a-vis um, uh, -vis other economies. Um, and I, I think that that's been the sort of fallback position of those who recognize everything I've just told you, which many, many, many Americans, probably most Americans do in one form or another, would agree with what I've just told you. Um, the fallback position is, yes, but we are the most innovative economy in the world. That is America's get-out-of-jail-free card. We have the only culture in the planet where you can go bankrupt and boast about it, which is a great strength. Um, you know, there are places in the Far East where... You, you, shame might, you know, um, uh, uh, um, silence you for life if you go bankrupt. Um, uh, and so it is worth asking, does this, um, does this dysfunctional farm um, actually interrupt the golden goose from laying its eggs? Um, and if you look at Silicon Valley, my, my, my uh, brother-in-law and sister-in-law live in, Silicon, in Palo Alto, which um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to visit them, but if they lived in um, Flint or Detroit, I probably wouldn't visit them so often. It's a gorgeous place. And um, I spend a lot of time looking at um, Silicon Valley um, for this book. Um, and it's something that, that quite surprised me, um, which is that the level of venture capital funding, which is the core sort of driver of um, American in innovation and entrepreneurialism, the level of venture capital funding has shrunk and continues to shrink, and is shrinking year by year. In the late 1990s, during the dot-com era, um, the average venture capital raising, annual raising, was $200 billion. Um, it has, since the dot-com bubble burst, uh, it has not exceeded $25 billion. Um, that's an extraordinary. If you think of that in terms of a graph, that's an extraordinary drop. Um, even more worrying from um, an entrepreneurial point of view is that the overall number of listed companies on American stock exchanges, whether they're small tech exchanges or the big 
um, Dow Jones listings um, has shrunk. The absolute number of listed American companies um, has dropped by more than a third in the last decade. Um, this has never happened before. Um, the rate of growth might have slowed in the past, but this is an absolute drop. Um, and the reason, um, the reason is that it's very, very hard um, for these small businesses to comply with the extraordinary regulations um, that they're required to comply with um, uh, in the wake of Enron, WorldCom, all these bankruptcies, all these scandals that happened at the beginning of this century and the regulations that came in afterwards. But being a listed company means you have to comply. So instead of um, um, fattening themselves up for a listing, they fatten themselves up to be purchased. And when you are purchased, when you're acquired, all innovation is killed. Anything Facebook buys ceases to be innovative. Um, and anything Google buys ceases to be innovative. And so it's a quite different pipeline that is killing innovation. Um, and I, I think, again, this is, a very, this, is, this is a much less appreciated dimension to the American, um, to, to the American competitiveness challenge. Michael mentioned that in the late 90s I was uh, Larry Summers' speechwriter. Um, that was the, and, and, and important to mention, it was when he was Treasury Secretary, not when he was President of Harvard, um, where, where um, he did need a speechwriter, um, for, the, for, the, um, for those who remember that. Um, and um, in the late 1990s, it was really the heyday, it was the apogee of American triumphalism. We have the economic model. Um, you, um, you should learn from us. We have nothing to learn from you. And I know because I was writing these speeches. Um, and um, and the um, assumption then, um, not unreasonable, I mean, based on history and based on economic theory, was that as other countries, as the Chinas and the Indias of this world, took the work of the hand, we would increasingly do the work of the brain. We were becoming a knowledge economy. Um, and cognition, etc., as opposed to muscles, would be what would, um, what would um, occupy our work days from now on. Um, uh, so if that follows, then we should assume that the manufacturing that is moving offshore is the low-value-added um, textile manufacturing. But in fact, if you look at what has migrated um, from the U.S. to anywhere you care to mention, um, it's the research and development work as well. It's the highest value-added end of it that is going. Um, if you look at America's trade in advanced manufacturing products, the most high-tech, aeronautical, um, um, high-design, high-engineering products, America was roughly in balance in terms of its trade in high-tech manufacturing in the mid-'90s, and it's now heavily, heavily, heavily in deficit. So it's, it's that, that assumption about how the world would... Um, how the world was developing was completely wrong. Um, there was a fascinating Pentagon report. Um, and in my book, I spend some time with generals and officers and um, uh, people at the National Defense University in Washington, which is, um, you know, for bright... It's a sort of internal Pentagon think tank about how they see the world. Pentagon is a sort of home of the Republican Party. The Episcopalians are the Republican Party at prayer, the Pentagon's the Republican Party at war. Um, and um, uh, it's something that, that I mentioned this morning um, that Ronald Reagan said about the Democratic Party. Uh, I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me. 
Well, the Pentagon think the Republican Party has left them. Um, and it was very interesting, and this isn't just stray people. This is from Admiral Mike Mullen downward, down. He was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and Dempsey, his replacement, has similar views, that America must cut its military spending. Um, it must rationalize its military budget because the source of national power is a strong economy. We must invest in education, etc., all the things that produce future growth. Um, and so when I was at, at the National Defense University, um, similar exercises to the war games we were playing in Texas, uh, again, bizarre, I should find myself in these circumstances, but I had a notebook ready, and um, I was absolutely fascinated by what they said. Um, that um, America, uh, American strength has always been based on its economic um, prowess, on its ability to innovate, and on its ability to be um, the cutting edge of technology, a lot of which comes from the Pentagon itself, the Defense um, Research Agency, DARPA, um, which um, was set up by Eisenhower in the 1950s um, and uh, produced by accident, serendipitously, because they had big budgets, the Internet. Internet originally set up as a secure communications system so that the military across America could communicate with each other in the event of a nuclear war. Um, became the Internet we know. And then any, almost any innovation you care to think of um, uh, has some public research and development money behind it. Um, and so the idea that America is going to restore its competitiveness by cutting all of this, which it has cut, is, I think, to belie America's own history. And which brings me on to the third um, and final area I wanted to highlight. We've talked about the middle class crisis um, and the competitiveness crisis. Um, there is also an intellectual crisis, a very deep intellectual crisis, I think, in America, um, and by which I'm not talking about Tea Party fundamentalism, constitutional fundamentalism. Um, I think that's well known enough and perhaps too easy to caricature. Um, but the crisis amongst mainstream economists, um, whose world was, should have been brought into the rubble along with Lehman Brothers in September 2008, and who, if you'd asked most economists, and I was in the States at the time, it was a very sort of common topic of conversation. If you ask most people, how much rethinking are we going to have to do um, of first principles, um, given the failure of the efficient market hypothesis? Um, uh, most people would have said a very profound rethinking, um, a change of paradigm. The world, the predictive model of, of, of the economics that we have has, has not served as well. Um, Alan Greenspan even apologized to Congress and said he was just flummoxed, he confused. Um, by what had happened. Um, so by now, I think, if you'd been asked in 2008 how much rethinking we would have done, and the answer would have been, well, we, we should have got quite far down the road. Um, and it's remarkable how little um, down the road we've got. Remember, this is the conventional wisdom that um, not just brought us the efficient market hypothesis that said all prices included all possible information and were, was rational. Um, whether you're talking about subprime mortgages or, or, or whatever, but brought us the um, notion that productivity growth leads to wage growth. 
um, and wage growth has gone that way and productivity growth has gone that way. Um, it, it was the model that told us that when China joined the World Trade Organization in 2000, something that there were one or two Larry Summers speeches about, um, that it would eliminate the deficit with China, the, the already significant trade deficit the United States had with China, but it's metastasized since then and is now $300 billion. Um, and uh, it's also the frame of mind here and now, three weeks before the election, with un the unemployment number being an absolutely key figure, that and how Obama performs in the debate tomorrow and tomorrow week, um, uh, that um, falling unemployment, uh, the creation of jobs, um, should essentially be replacing those jobs that were lost. They shouldn't be at half the wages of the jobs that have disappeared. But they are at half the wages, some of these jobs. And in aggregate, they are very much um, at lower wages. Uh, the, the market is clearing at a lower price. The labor market is clearing at a lower price. And it gets lower each year into this recovery. Um, there is something profoundly wrong with the economic model that tells us the opposite should be happening. Um, and um, a, a surprisingly little amount of, of, of revisiting of that. So I think there's an intellectual crisis. People know that, um, uh, and Larry Summers, to give him great credit, has recently given a couple of speeches on this subject. He's admitted to indifference. Um, uh, or, or not indifference, what's the word for it? Um, ambivalence um, on what it is that's causing it, this and what, and what the solution is. Um, and, and so people are beginning to be aware that, that we're not going to go back to the status quo ante. We're not going to get back to a, a naturally rising middle class unless something changes um, about the environment in which they live and work. Um, now, I want to conclude by talking a little bit about this election. Um, uh, not, not, um, not so much in the context of decline because it's not a part of the debate. Um, Romney has stopped saying that uh, a re-election of Obama will lead to the continuation of American decline because he's clearly in the projecting sunny moderation phase of his candidacy. I have to tell you a joke, by the way, that a, a liberal, a moderate, and a conservative walk into a bar and the barman looks up and he says, Hi, Mitt. Um, <laughs> Mitt, Mitt is in the moderate phase. Um, uh, so he had, he's ceased this sort of declinist-in-chief critique. And, of course, Obama, very much aware of Jimmy Carter's catastrophic speech um, in 1980, the Malays, it became known as the Malays speech, where he said America's declining Essentially, America is declining. He didn't use that term, but America, our morals are going down, our economy is going down. And the American public agreed and voted in his opponent later that year. Classic advice, don't follow Jimmy Carter. So Obama himself is also projecting exceptionalism. We are American, and therefore we will succeed. But I think the point about, and, and, we, and, and we have succeeded so many times before, there's been Pearl Harbor, there's been a Great Depression, Sputnik, um, the, the late 70s, the rise of Japan um, in the 80s, each time we have overcome because we're American. Um, but I think the point about this challenge is that unlike Pearl Harbor being bombed or Hitler declaring war on you or the Soviets showing that they can 
launch satellites into space before you can, or the Japanese taking your, some of your core industrial strengths from you um, in, in broad daylight, is that they were unifying events. Um, they brought about a bipartisan response. Um, the current polarization of American economy is matched uncoincidentally by a polarization of its politics, which makes a response impossible. You have to have a supermajority in the American system to take action. Um, and it's, it's pretty hard to conceive whoever wins this election. And I don't think it, frankly, in the grand scheme of things, matters that much who wins in terms of these issues. It probably does matter quite a bit in terms of the Middle East and Iran. But in terms of domestic issues and the economy and these trends that I've been talking about, I doubt the next president is going to have much sway over them. But the key point here is the saying it don't make it so um, observation um, is particularly apt when the country is this divided because the polit political system makes it impossible to act. The most likely scenario for November the 6th, at least until the first debate, was that Obama would be re-elected and the Republicans would retain control of the House, which means another two years like the last two years. Um, the slightly less likely scenario, but now decreasingly implausible, is Romney gets elected um, and the Republicans control, um, retain control of the House and maybe even get control of the Senate. Um, that tomorrow portion of the budget will, will get cut to ribbons in that, in that scenario of an undivided Republican um, Washington. Um, and so I think there is probably some difference. Um, um, in who gets elected. Um, but either way, the power of any American president to affect these deep-seated trends is very, very limited. And we in the media are to blame in terms of hyping up just how, how big and, uh, um, and potent a position this is. Um, so um, I just wanted to introduce that election flavor uh, into this because everything I've been talking about um, uh, is, is very much, um, much sub-radar in this election. The middle class, of course, are at the heart of it, but the idea that America could be experiencing declining competitiveness is, is not a part of this election. It should be the heart of it. Um, and on that very uplifting um, uh, and um, happy note, um, I'd, I'd be um, happy to take questions. Okay, Ed, uh, much, much to reflect on, much to debate. Um, the, I, you, you mentioned briefly the Cold War and John Foster Dulles, who was one of the most effective and seriously unpleasant secretaries of state under the great Eisenhower, in mm -hmm. fact, who emerges in the historiography more positive now today than ever. Mm -hmm. But uh, Dulles made the point that um, if you've got a problem, you need an enemy. Um, mm -hmm. and if you like the United States had the best enemy in the world and it was called the Soviet Union mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that it was big and nasty, had an alternative ideology and mobilised you know, mobilised America, it created some degree of consensus at home with one or two exceptions like the Vietnam War it gave America a sense of purpose, a mission even, it forged and concretised its alliances now I don't want to be overly conspiratorial it did seem to me that one conclusion one might derive 
from your analysis, whether one agrees with it in, in its entirety is another question, but one conclusion you could derive from that is America needs a good enemy again. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been without a decent threat for 20 years. You know, Japan went down the toilet. The Europeans are clearly not a threat to anybody except mainly themselves. Um, it's not going to be Britain because, well, oh, that's ridiculous. Um, there, there I say the... And I wonder, just, I just this whole question then arises about China, because I know it's a partner, I know the economic relations between the two are huge, blah, 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 and everybody knows that all the rhetoric in the election doesn't really add up to a lot in the end, but I just wonder whether or not there is, a, there is some underlying driver here which is creating the need for some need for an external... A unifying. A unifying aspect. Yeah, I'm not talking about a new war in the making, but do you think that's playing into the into the debates about the election and more generally in the American foreign policy. Well, I mean, Romney, I'll start there and then I'll open it up to everybody else. Yeah, uh, that, That's an excellent question. Romney, of course, is being very aggressive on China. Is. And this is the one area he is departing from the standard sort of business mm-hmm. Republican agenda um, and has promised to brand China a currency manipulator on day one, which is surprising because you know, it's not a pledge you can wriggle out of. It's very specific. It's day one and it's branding China a currency manipulator. So he's promised to risk a very high risk of a trade war with China. It might not be. It's actually in itself, it's just like calling somebody a name. There's no, no necessary actions that flow from it. Um, but um, uh, clearly he would try and wriggle out of it um, on day two. Um, and you, know, you don't insult your banker. You don't, you don't insult your creditor. Yes. Um, uh, so China could be that role, I guess. You know, Al-Qaeda and, and terrorism has receded about, and the killing of bin Laden, of course, has lanced a lot of that boil politically. Mm. Um, Romney's doing his best with the Libya thing. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of a looming, unifying sort mm. of threat or event <coughs> that could help overcome this bitter, paralyzing division mm. in Washington... It's hard to see what that would be. I mean, mm. it's a kind of look in the mirror at the moment. Mm. I've met the enemy and it's us. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I actually agree with you. I think the Soviet Union was a peculiarly unique threat, a peculiarly unique enemy, uh, and nothing can substitute for it. And certainly anything that's been looked around, you know, tick the boxes, it doesn't just tick, right. tick the boxes at all. Paradoxically, maybe the collapse of the Soviet Union is both a victory for the United States, but also is a fundamental problem for the United States in, in, in another way. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, let's, uh, that's enough of me. I could go on forever, of course. Yeah. You know. uh, t- gentleman here and uh, somebody over here. Anybody over here with a hand up? Yeah, right up there. The gentleman at the front there. Okay. You go second. You'll go first. Where are you? Oh, you're over there. Please, yeah. <laughs> Thank Sorry. you. Thanks. Thanks a lot for your talk. Um, you talk a lot about the polarization of the American political system, um, and you hear this a lot. Um, but I think what doesn't get mentioned is the dynamic of the polarization uh, is more the extremism of the Republican Party. It's them shifting way too far to the right. The Democrats are maybe acquiescing a little bit, but it's not like one party's going to the left, the other party's going to the right. It's that one party's just become increasingly hostile to fact-based reality. Um, and this is true in every dimension, be it economic, be it science-based, be it the budget of, the, of tomorrow, as you mentioned. Um, however, it seems that in journalistic analysis, and I think that your speech was, was kind of a reflection of this, it seems that um, it's almost like it would, be, it, it would be impolite to actually call out the Republicans on this and to pin the blame on them. 
um, for this polarization. It's like it wouldn't do to say that we've got to be polite because they're part of the American political establishment. Um, so can you just maybe talk to that as to why maybe yourself in the speech or people more generally uh, aren't more sure. ready just to call, call it out and call it like it is? I, mean, I, I do the whole time in my FT column. Um, yeah. Uh, and if you, if you want a, a sort of fun read, look at the comments beneath them. Discover <laughs> hitherto an unknown appellation portion to the FT readership. Um, uh, the, um, the term asymmetric polarization is just not a good one to use in a speech. Um, it tends to send people to sleep. But that's, that's what scholars call the phenomenon. It's very clearly an asymmetric polarization going on. One party has gone more extreme than the other. Um, and, you know, democratic congresses tend to vote through Republican presidents' agendas, whether it's the Patriot Act, the Highways Bill, Medicare Part D, all the things Bush wanted to push through, barring Social Security privatization. He rented enough what they call Republicans for a day, Democrats who were prepared for a day to vote Republican. Um, at each critical stage, Obama has just not had any Republican votes for it. I mean, he had three on the stimulus out of, you know, a possible 200-and-something Republicans. Only three voted for it. Every single Republican the previous year had voted for the Bush stimulus. All of a sudden, they were theocratically opposed to the stimulus. So I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it is, it's asymmetric. But um, I do call it out whenever I write, and, you know, I, perhaps too much. Um, I, I'm too far in the other direction. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, gentlemen, over here at the front. Yeah, <coughs> what I'd like to raise are, are a couple of points, really, which you haven't raised. Uh, to a European uh, who's lived in, in the States, yeah. lived in New York, um, the exceptionalism seems to be in terms of inequality. Uh, and actually, almost um, an uncivilized society, and I'll give you my example, the high incarceration rate, which you know, just boggles the mind to us, uh, the state of uh, the availability of health care, the lack of availability of health care and its inefficiency. Uh, living in New York, if you went up beyond the mid-90s on the east side or 120 in the west side, I mean, you almost thought, I almost thought I was in Chechnya. Mm -hmm. transported to... You're walking amongst, you know, going to our buildings. I mean, that's it. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the state of the housing projects mm -hmm. compared even with our worst uh, council states here. Right. You haven't seen some I of quite the like Manhattan. I'm going okay. to defend Manhattan from, okay. from that, okay. but I know what you mean. I mean, healthcare, the prison population, if the prison population was today what it was in the mid 1980s, in the mid 1980s it was about half a million, it's now two and a half million. Um, if the number of Americans on disability was the same today as it was in the mid 1980s and it's like tripled, then unemployment, the pool in which you measure the unemployed, would be much larger, and unemployment would be something like 14% today. They've just been taken out of the calculation. Um, and so we're not comparing apples with apples with European unemployment rates because we don't have those prison populations. I think the UK is trying very hard, isn't it? It is, yeah, but it's, not, it's nowhere close. Nowhere close. Yeah, yeah gentlemen, no, please. Uh, yeah, you pointed to this of American political model and the political system as a source of gridlock. Um, would, you, would you advocate some different model of government? I can hear you. Yeah, he wants. No, it's, and, and it's, it's impossible because the Constitutional Convention requires three quarters of states to ratify it and two thirds of the majority in each chamber. Um, and the states, as you know, each state has two senators. 
So California, with 40 million people, has two senators. South Dakota, with 600,000 people, has two senators. Why would South Dakota vote to have 0.1 senator? You know, it's like Turkey voting for Thanksgiving. Um, uh, so it's not, it's not going to happen. Um, and it's also a good question because Britain has a much more decisive, unified Westminster majoritarian system. And it is currently illustrating how decisiveness in the wrong direction isn't necessarily good. Decisiveness for its own sake. Um, the austerity we're having in Britain is what the Tea Party would like to do in America. And so the gridlock actually is saving America from um, a double-dip recession. You first heard it here. Yeah, go on there. Thank you. You've got um, so many good quotes. <laughs> I'm writing them down. Yeah. What I find striking about your book is that you, you obviously met a lot of people from the public. Oh. Oh, can you hear me? Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Um, you met a lot of people from the public, teachers, manufacturers, but you also met a lot of politicians. Who do you think, either from the, you know, from the public or from the political uh, circle, uh, would readily accept or except challenging this notion of American exceptionalism? Because obviously this is very important to sort of move forward and um, accept sort of hard realities. Uh, you know, it, it is very striking. Everybody unelected, you know, with half a brain that I meet, agrees, um, you know, that America is in many res respects exceptionally bad. In, you know, the prison population, the depression rate, the suicide rate, the, the sort of the social consequences of what's happening to the middle class that has much less of a safety net than the middle class does in most of Europe. Um, you know, it's something that everybody's aware of. And so it's amazing, it's remarkable, and this is a very solipsistic way of looking at it, but the rece reception to my book has been very open, very positive. Um, the Appalachian readership, you know, hasn't, hasn't manifested itself yet. Um, and so um, I, I'm quite encouraged that America is not, is, the American political system is in denial because you just can't appeal to the low information, the floating voter, the least informed voter, um, you know, who makes their decision on whether Obama's looking at his shoes during the debate or whatever it is that influences their vote. You can't appeal to them by saying things are going badly and they're getting worse. They're not going to vote for you. Um, but people who are semi-informed and very informed are all pretty much, I mean, it's not in denial anymore at that level. Okay. okay. Uh, I, I, we pick up lots of, lots of hands going on. I want to bring in as many people as possible. Sir, back. Thank you. Thank you. I just wanted to go back to something you said about Mitt Romney's uh, comments about um, labeling China as a, as a currency manipulator. Mm. There's one thing I know that the line of the left, Paul Krugman and Mitt Romney, completely agree upon, and that's China. And it's kind of interesting that they both feel that China is manipulating the currency and that is detrimental to the U.S. And I guess I was just wondering... In the short term, I agree with you that cutting off you know, China's credit to the U.S. could be disastrous, but longer term, is all this credit that China and other countries are providing to the U.S., is this not, in effect, necessarily a completely good thing? I mean, could it be, in essence, helpful longer term to, uh, to insult your, your drug dealer, so to speak? <laughs> right. Um, and that's, a very, that's a very good way of putting it. Um, no, I don't, think, I don't think it would be. And it wouldn't be good you know, for China to pull out either because the dollar would plummet as it sold treasuries and converted them back into renminbi and the value of its investments, of its whatever, it's $2 trillion now of treasury bills China's got, would turn into $1 trillion worth pretty quickly. That, I mean, it's financial mutually assured destruction, the relationship that neither can afford to go to war because both will get destroyed. 
Um, this has got to be gradually unwound. And, you know, I think we're making a fetish of China, or at least Romney is making a fetish of China. Look at Mexico. Mexico is performing exactly the same role as China. And it's within NAFTA. It's sort of integrated deeply within the American economy. As Chinese wage rates go up, um, and as transport costs go up, oil prices have gone up, it becomes less and less economic for American companies to produce in China. It's too far away. So they're shifting to Mexico. Um, and, you know, is Mexico going to become the next enemy? I mean, it, the, the, the key thing is not to take it out on trade, um, but it's to take it out in having a more progressive tax system, investing in your people, um, having equality of opportunity. All these things are within America's power. They're within small government's powers to affect. But America can, can affect its, how, how, how it responds to globalization. It can't change globalization, I don't think. Okay, I've got, who was the next one to come on? Gentleman there, yeah. Um, Please. You used the, um, the phrase, the Latin Americanization of America, but it, it's true also in terms of the ethnic composition of the United States. I think projections suggest that within an, a couple of decades, the, uh, the white Anglo-Saxon uh, ethnicity yeah. will become a, a minority, perhaps the largest minority, but nevertheless a minority. What, what do you think the, um, you know, the changing ethnic composition of America over the next few years, how do you think that is going to affect the politics of, of America? It's an excellent question, and uh, the answer would be look at California. California is always the future, and California is the most diverse portion of America. And I think you know, it's one of the things that makes me most optimistic about America, also makes me most pessimistic at the same time. Um, and that is that you know, it's changing, it's becoming more diverse, it's looking more and more like the world um, as time goes on. And that's a positive thing. It's becoming a more tolerant country. Mm. Um, gay marriage, whatever, whatever you care to mention, it's becoming a lot more tolerant. Um, all this, though, diversity makes politics more, more, more difficult because America is still... Politics is a, ethnically uh, about ethnic organisation. And if you look at California, um, the Republican Party is the Anglo Party. Um, and the Democrats are everybody else. Um, and um, you need a supermajority to get anything done in America. It's not just a simple majority, it's a supermajority. You need 60 or, or 67%, depending on the legislature, to get anything done. And the Anglos will always have 30 or 40%, always, for the next generation. And they are blocking. California makes the dysfunctionality of California, which is falling apart in terms of infrastructure and public universities, makes Washington look like a sort of model of Jeffersonian government. Um, but it is, I fear, the future. Can I um, maybe bring in another point, and then I'll bring in other people. Uh, let me just be a bit contrarian. Sure, I mean, I, I kind of obviously partly agree with what you do, and I partly disagree. Um, it, we've had this debate before. I was once called Pollyanna because I was the only Brit they could find who actually was optimistic about America's future. Indeed, the only person who was optimistic. So I won't be too Pollyanna-ish tonight. Um, things will always turn out well. I don't believe that. But let me just pick you up, maybe, and add in two things which you didn't touch on, one mm -hmm. about soft power mm -hmm. and one about hard power. Mm -hmm. um, as somebody who follows higher education quite carefully, because I want the LSU to be number one mm -hmm. uh, rather than Caltech, um, and I follow these world university, university rating systems only seriously because I think the LSE is such a good place. Um, look, 
when you look at that, I mean, if you take that as a measure of something globally, and if I was a kind of an optimist about America, I'd say, yeah. okay, I hear what you're saying. It's all very good stuff. Miserable middle class, inequality all over the place, mm -hmm. prisons filling up with all sorts of people, blah, blah, blah. Um, how do you explain that half of the top-ranked universities in the world happen to be located in the United States of America. And if you go to the next 200, it's nearly 95. Um, now, I notice some talk about Asian universities rising, but they're miles away, and European universities also face some constraints. So if the system is so damaged, as you're suggesting, why is it that you still get these world university rankings which demonstrate U.S. universities doing so well? And indeed, why do so many Chinese middle class want to go and study in the Cornells and everybody else. The point one. Secondly, on the hard power, I, I, you know, on the internal stuff, I, I, pick, I, you know, I, 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 I kind of more or less go along with that. But on the hard power stuff, I mean, you, your Pentagon guys, okay, they may talk all that kind of stuff. But the truth of the matter is, you know what the global military expenditures look like today. There's the United States, and then there's a bunch of Luxembourgs. <laughs> There is China. You know, oh, wait, China, yeah, but China. come on. The United States spends six times more on international security than China. The United States has 11 carrier groups in the world today. China's just bought or refurbished a clapped-out ex-Soviet <laughs> aircraft carrier. <laughs> you know, we'll you know if I'm looking at that, so, you know, just to be provocative, Ed, because you no, want me to be provocative, you, and, and they would be very annoyed with me if I wasn't. No, this I, is the LSE, after all. I, um, we'd love to be not rude to our speakers, but to provoke our speakers. How would you... Could, both, 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 both what would you say? Questions. What would you um, say? If you look at most rankings of universities, um, top 20 universities in the world, um, you, you usually get 12 or 13 American yeah. in the top 20. You usually get three or four British, including the LSE, yeah, Oxford, Cambridge, Imperial College, LSE, which means per capita we're twice as likely to go to a top 10, 20 universities yeah. in America. Yeah. Yeah. Are we a superpower? Not, not yesterday. I think, you know, it comes... America is great not because of Harvard. Harvard is there because America is great. It, it could afford Harvard. Yeah. Um, that's the first response to that. Very good, provocative, deeply provocative question. Um, the second is that all these Chinese and Indians and um, God knows who else, the best and brightest from around the world, who go to American universities and getting the best education, particularly the ones in the sciences, engineering, physics, PhDs, etc., subsidized heavily subsidized education, you're not paying a fraction of what it really costs, right. are being put on a plane back home. Mm. Since 9-11, they're not getting work visas. Mm. Um, so America is subsidizing its competitors to a huge tune. Um, on the hard power thing, America spends six times as much as China. It pays its soldiers 12 times as much as Chinese soldiers. <laughs> um, so you're, comparing, you're yeah. not comparing apples with apples. If you did a purchasing power parity comparison... Oh. of what it costs to buy X in China and what it costs to buy Y in America, um, you'd find they're much closer to each other. Yeah. Um, thirdly, um, even though Romney pledges to raise defense spending to 4% of GDP, which is quite a big increase, yeah. I think it's going to be pretty impossible to deliver in practice. But even if he did, the rate of growth of China's military spending um, has been double-digit um, for the last 20 years, and it's going to be double-digit um, for the foreseeable future, uh, barring a Chinese collapse. All they seek to do, um, using the word asymmetric again, for which many apologies, all they seek to do is gradually dominate their neighborhood. Sure. 
America wants to continue to maintain its global hegemony. It's a lot more expensive to do that. China seeks to extend what it calls its area of denial um, further and further from its shores. Um, and so it's an asymmetric race. China is going to, with what it's spending, um, be able to match America in that neighborhood. Finally, I mean, the, China's military spending will, over, according to The Economist, which has done the most detailed study of this, will overtake America's by 2021. It's, I don't believe it. It's tomorrow. I mean, it's not far. Yeah, but I don't, you know, yeah, I, don't, I, the I, don't, I, don't, I don't think this is where America, yeah. it's, it's on the economy I'm okay. worried about. No, it's not that. really, I'm not predicting war. Sure, no, no, no. no, um, no. Okay, I just wanted to throw something in. Uh, Chap in a white shirt, please. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, in the beginning, you talked about relative power, and actually that you thought it was good that there was a shift of relative power, right? But eventually, I think that it's as well that, like you as well argued, that the United States can boast about being bankrupt, going bankrupt. But those are related, isn't it? I mean, for the same thing, that rel relative power shows that they can go bankrupt and they are not punished for it. So that diminishing uh, sense of the power, do you think that they will grasp for some, um, for some radical answers, for some radical solutions? Will they, like, like the hard power, use their military force in that sense? Mm. Do, you, do you believe mm. um, So I just want to make sure I understand the question. The, could, could you just repeat just the last clarify, bit? The last, the last, the last bit. Um, you argue about relative power. And yeah. I think that the relative power makes exactly that, that the United States can, can go bankrupt without being punished for it. Right? So at, that, at this point, they're going downhill. And so that means they can't go bankrupt anymore. And they're in a kind of vulnerable position. They will have to use different kinds of means to maintain the position. Mm. That is, radical solutions... Um, mm. use military I see yes, so compensating see. for loss of economic competitiveness using, using its military assets or hard power assets oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, um, I should mention in terms of um, relative power you know that it would be quite consistent to have a continued dilution of America's relative power with Americans getting richer how they distribute that wealth is their business, but with the country in the aggregate getting richer. Um, and economics is not a zero-sum game. Geopolitics is a zero-sum game. And I guess that's where your question is, is, um, is aimed. Yep, quite possible. Um, uh, less unlikely under a re-elected Obama. I mean, Romney, it, is, it should be, you know, a lot of this is abstract about long-term trends I'm talking about, but... Romney's position on Iran is pretty unequivocal, as, as, as unequivocal as his position on um, the Chinese currency manipulation issue. And that's, you know, looming pretty close, um, that moment of truth. Um, so, um, I, yeah, I mean, that's always a fear. I mean, recent history in America shows that that's a very justifiable fear. It's a good question. Yeah. Uh, uh, your second, I think there's a chap up here. Yeah, please, yeah. Who is it? Yeah, please. Yeah, you got yes, the mic. Hi. Uh, my question is, if we've been talking about a lot of what you said to Americans and the American, uh, sorry, a lot of what you said to America. Um, I'm curious if you were to speak with the uh, the leaders of some other countries, let's say China, let's say some other big countries, let's say the Prime Minister of Britain. What three points would you say to them to say, look, America is in decline. It's probably not going to get its act together anytime soon. These are the three things that you need to do to start preparing for that. Okay. Maybe, maybe stick with China. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a fun Yeah. 
I think Cameron, a bit of a difference on that one. Cameron would react differently to Xi Jinping to yeah, this yeah. news, I think. Um, to China. Um, the Chinese um, uh, um, central um, bank, head of the Chinese central bank, was um, quoted um, by a friend of mine um, in the FT saying, um, please don't decline too quickly. You know, um, China, you know, will, will, is not ready. The renminbi is not ready to be the international reserve currency. That involves having a fully convertible capital account, and China can't, doesn't want to take that risk now. It's a gradual process. Um, so I would encourage them to keep investing in U.S. treasuries. I guess. The other, the other side of that, just about another, the hard part, the foreign policy side, is that I think there's another side to the Chinese debate. If they see, the, and, and there's clearly some evidence to support this. Some members or elements within the Chinese political or military leadership seeing American decline, and this is one interpretation of Chinese foreign policy now. America, America's going down, we're on the up, wacko, mm -hmm. our day has come, let's start pushing hard. Mm -hmm. and, and, and this has been an interpretation of a more assertive Chinese foreign policy in its own region over the last two years, that they actually seeing this, and which in a sense is highly problematic, I would have thought. It's highly problematic because there is paradox to all of this, yes. to get rid of that question. I mean, the American power is growing in Asia yeah, at the moment because of fear of China exactly. amongst China's neighbours. And that's going to be the case for a while, but there will be a tipping point at which China is so overpowering that you know, homage to the Middle Kingdom will again you know, become a temptation on the part of its small neighbours and America's power will wane. We, we're in a moment where America can actually in Asia um, help try and incentivize China to be a responsible stakeholder, the usual language, in you know, a refurbished multilateral system. I mean, that all sounds like hopelessly utopian Sorry. at the moment, but... We go with that. We like, we like, we like hopeless utopian, utopianism yeah. at the LSE. Mm -hmm. Yeah, gentlemen over there, please. Um, <laughs> you seem to focus at length on the public sector in terms of the failings for, American, for Americans to climb. And I kind of wanted to see, see you elaborate a little bit more on the private sector and the private sector's yeah. uh, potential kind of overcome some of these failings. So we think about kind of the reshoring pipe manufacturing and look at the example of Germany where they had these kind of small and medium businesses which have kind of developed to growth, whereas I know you talked a bit about uh, Silicon Valley kind of these kind of small and medium enterprises. Yeah, I mean, I focus on Silicon Valley just because it's the best known, but if you look at the rate of business startups in America as measured by the proportion of all existing businesses every year, um, it's, it's, it's the lowest on record. Um, and if you look at the number of people each business startup employs, it just keeps going down. Um, so, I mean, America, I have no doubt, has the most dynamic, innovative private sector in the world. I'm not suggesting otherwise. It is less overwhelmingly dynamic and innovative relative to others than it was, say, 10 years ago. And that is a very short time frame. And the trends are mostly pointing pretty sharply in the wrong direction. So we're on a, we're on a, 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 sliding, a, a sliding slope here that, that is very, very worrying. The public sector has played a huge role in, in, in America's private sector success throughout its history, not just in terms of great innovations through research and development, but through the world's best infrastructure um, and the world's first mass secondary public education system. If you look now at the international rankings um, on education, science, and on maths, America in the 1970s was still number one or in the top three or four. It's now not even in the top 30 in terms of its average educational outcomes. And, and again, those budgets are going in the wrong direction. They're being cut. The tomorrow budget's being cut. 
this is not sort of some idle ab- abstract concern. This is a very real, visceral, declining competitiveness we're talking about. Um, so I've no, no doubt that you know, the culture in America is the most conducive to risk-taking in the planet, but that on its own is not enough. American history tells you, as much as any other country's history, you need intelligent public policy, um, and you, you need partnership between public and private, and we're not getting that. I have two questions. Uh, my first question is about the dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, surely, if America is going towards decline, the US, it's only a matter of time till the U.S. dollar is replaced as the world reserve currency. So I'd like to ask you how long you think that's going to take. And secondly, do you really think that America can afford um, to have another war in the Middle East? with Iran, both economically and also politically? Okay, two little, two little questions. Yeah, the, the answer to the second is easy, easy, easy. that's no. Um, that, but nobody can afford that. Um, to, to, to the first... Um, to, sorry, what was it again? The dollar. The dollar. If, 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 America's, this, if America's going down the plug hole, why is the dollar still number one and what will ever replace right. it? Um, um, th- I mean, there's lots of fairly utopian hopes that we can have a sort of equivalent to the Esperanto of currencies. Um, you know, where we Successful have um, language, that uh, yeah, um, a sort of <laughs> mix, so well. a basket of currencies. Yeah. But ultimately, for a reserve currency to be credible, you need one central bank behind it. So the renminbi is the only plausible alternative. And funny enough, this two-day simulation that Michael and I were on in Texas, it, I don't think we're giving anything away. That it, it, began, no it, began, it began with the scenario of American president taking power in January 2021. And it ended in... Um, uh, January 2025 with the next president and the renminbi was the reserve currency by then. <laughs> it was quite, it was quite interesting. And that's why my speech was seen as really optimistic because I gave it at the end of this two days. <laughs> if you recall. Yeah, I do recall very well. Do you think yeah. I'm not going to get invited back? No, 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 you will but, get invited back because Texas loves you. Yes. <laughs> you got so much meat no. when I was there anyway. I got over it, you know. Bison burgers. Yeah, yeah, spice and burgers. Bison burgers. Yes, sir. Hi. So my question is more on the polarization of American politics. What's striking coming from America is that the polarization focuses almost exclusively on cultural issues. I mean, what motivates the Republican base currently are social issues. They do not talk about economics, or if they do, it's a very hand-wavy gesture to free market economics, thank God for trickle-down, and that's the end of it. Where did this cultural radicalization come from? What is it mm. that's so appealing about this narrative to basically the Republican base? Good question. Very good question. I think it's deep within America's DNA. I mean, if you look at the history of, of right from the beginning, from the 1790s when the Republic was born, um, the, 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 the Shays Rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion, and then you move on to the sort of know-nothing movement of the mid-19th century, you know, get onto McCarthyism in the 1950s, the Red Scare. That there is a sort of deep distrust, distrust of government. You know, there's the sort of branded by the the circumstances of America's birth that government power is always potentially King George the Third, and the system is designed to prevent his reemergence. Um, so I think when things go wrong, the tendency to use government as a scapegoat and taxes as the expression of that scapegoat is within America's um, political DNA. Just one sort of postscript to that is that generally the more homogenous a country, the less diverse, 
the more tolerant it, tolerance it has for taxes because you're transferring income to people like us. And so America, this is what I meant about America's diversity being a great source of optimism in, in the cultural sphere and a great source of pessimism in the political sphere. It makes collective action very difficult. How do you explain the fact that 43% of Americans think Charles Darwin's theory is one amongst several? <laughs> I mean, you know, um, it's not just... It's, it must be more than just what you're saying, though, isn't it? Some, um, the, the, you know, the, there is... No, I can't really explain that. No, no, no. That's a great answer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there are certain things one just can't explain, but anyway. Yeah. Okay, right. Uh, but walking with the dinosaurs and all that. Yeah, yeah. please, sir. Whoever. Who's ever got the mic? You've got it. Okay, fine, guys. Hi. Um, I was just wondering, we've spoken briefly about sort of seeing uh, an increasingly large and increasingly marginalised underclass. What's been sort of different at the moment is we haven't seen sort of widespread social unrest like perhaps you've seen in past generations in America and even here last summer. Do you think there's much risk of that happening over there in America? It's really hard. I can hear you, but I just couldn't spot you. Um, Large social underclass, is there any danger or possibility of social unrest in the United States as there was in London and elsewhere last summer in the UK? I guess so, but it was so unpredictable here, I wouldn't dare predict it there. I mean, people often remark how surprised they are at the absence of this in the last few years. Okay, I've been, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that all the men have spoken so far and I haven't had any women putting their hands up, but uh, good, please, uh, yes, sorry. Now, gentlemen first, let him go first and then bring it down to the lady. Yeah, please, there's a woman, yeah, please. So Sir. what should America do, and perhaps more to the point, what should the Democrats do? Okay, short and sharp, right. Um, I think that, I mean, <laughs> you know that famous Teddy Roosevelt quote about you've got to be in the arena and the critics sitting... I know, so mindful of fact, I'm just just talking here. But I think Obama um, made a a very big strategic mistake with the way he approached this election. He should have taken a leaf from Harry S. Truman's book and campaigned against a do-nothing Congress, because that's where the power is on non-foreign policy defense. He should have campaigned, he should have, uh, it would have had the virtue also of being accurate. What is blocking the kinds of reforms we need? It is a totally disciplined obstructionist, Republican Party controlling Congress. He should have campaigned against it. Um, and he didn't. Um, you know, and he's always had this contradiction uh, between you know, being very much an idealist Democrat but also wanting to be bipartisan. <clears throat> and I think you know, bipartisanship is a tone. It's not a strategy. Um, and um, you know, hope is not a strategy either. Um, so I think, um, I, think, I think he should have I think he should have called a spade a spade and, and campaigned against Congress as it is. You need... Um, because he's so... You remember that when he first shot to fame in 2004, there's a red state, blue state, we worship an awesome god in the blue states and you drink cappuccino in the red... Whatever it was that the red states do. Um, and um, so it's so much part of his political identity that he's bipartisan. Mm. Harry Truman played tough on foreign policy and very progressive on domestic stuff. Right. You know, that's what he did. Exactly. You know. And Obama's got the tough on foreign policy. Yeah, he's got, he hasn't done the other bit. I think that's part of it. Yeah, please hear. Yeah. Um, oh, I, no. uh, please. So my question is going more back to money from the 1%. Um, what are your thoughts about the Citizens United um, court ruling? Has that really affected um, politics today? 
Yes, I mean, I think the numbers I gave you earlier, these are rough, um, but the fact that the 200 billionaires who are pouring money into this election are spending more than the rest of America combined um, is, is a, you know, people don't spend money for nothing. They expect a return. Um, and, I, you know, I do think that's disturbing. I think there is a more subtle problem with the money-raising culture, which is the amount of time candidates and presidents who are candidates spend with rich people and not talking to other people. Um, hearing their concerns mm. is, is very worrying. It's just a mindshare problem as well as a sort of more ethical concern about um, something for something. And uh, any candidate will spend a minimum a third of their time raising money. And th candidates are always candidates. This is a perpetual campaign. It, it doesn't stop. Mm. Mm. If, if at the beginning of your six-year Senate term your war chest is empty then potential opponents will come out of the woodwork. So you have to start raising money from day one of being re-elected to prevent a challenge. Hmm. Okay, I'm going to take two more. The gentleman at the back there with the white T-shirt on you. Hi, please. Um, yeah, just moving away from the politics of the campaign, um, in purely economic terms, you were speaking about how the jobs that, would, that have been disappearing over the past few years are now being replaced by those that are paid uh, a fraction of only those that have been lost. I just wondered, in your opinion... You, you said that something dramatic would have to change that, otherwise we were sort of doomed to, to continual decline in that respect. What do, you, what do you think would be that dramatic change to, to force something positive? Okay, just hang that question. I'll take this other gentleman over here who's had his hand up for a little while, and this will have to be the last one, I'm afraid to say, because the time's running out. Please, sir. Uh, Ed, can I just ask you, um, mm -hmm. um, aren't you a victim of global hegemon stability theory, don't you think that the world always needs a big policeman and your response about the central bank, you always need a strong central bank aren't we inevitably seeing America's decline and the rise of the rest, a multilateral system of governance that requires other powers to assume some of the responsibilities the previous hegemon had. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I still think it's not too late for uh, America um, to work to reinvent the multi or at least refurbish the multilateral system not just the UN but the World Bank um, and other institutions to make it so more legitimate um, and to make it um, very difficult for a rising China to challenge it um, unfortunately the last 20 years America has done pretty much nothing and even Obama you know this year when he had the opportunity to appoint the first non-American head of the World Bank still goes for an American um, even though it's only 17% of the bank's shareholding. Um, and there was a very highly qualified Nigerian um, Ngozi, Nigerian finance minister, available. Um, and um, the, the, the degree to which that would have re-legitimized the bank in Africa, where China, of course, is the real competitor to the bank, and it gives much better terms. Um, but Obama, you know, had the usual political calculations that a Nigerian going to Capitol Hill and asking for more money is not going to be as effective as an American going to Capitol Hill and asking for more money. I understand that um, calculation, but it's, um, it's strategically, I think, blind. Um, I, of course, if you'd done that, it would have fed into the Romney, you're leading from behind and giving power away. So, you know, I understand it, but um, America still has a chance to re-legitimize all these international institutions, which would make it more difficult for anybody to become a hegemon after America. And, uh, the question for the chap in white. Yeah, what, 
Could you just repeat it very quickly? Yeah, that was, yeah. Um, just about your comment on how jobs that have had disappeared um, were now being replaced with, by those that are being paid much worse and that that's continuing to decline. You said that we need a dramatic change. I just yeah. wondered if you what would be the reason. Yeah, what would I mean, the, the cliché has become is that we need a Marshall Plan for the middle class. We need so. massive spending on German-style spending on training, vocational skills, up adult education, that really when we're talking about the decline of the middle class, we're not just talking about a fairness issue or inequality issue, which I, I understand that perspective. We're talking about the declining competitiveness of Americans as individuals, as, or as households, or as a middle class. They need to be upskilled. And it's not the complete solution, but it's an essential part of any solution. And again, those budgets are being cut. Um, so a Marshall Plan for the middle class, cliche though it is, it's, it's, got to be, it's got to be what any solution would involve. And I've got to ask a question, last question. Who's going to win the presidential election? <laughs> <coughs> Who do you think will? Uh, I would, as I asked that earlier today, and my answer was I would still just marginally go for Obama, but I'd only put about three quid fifty on it. How much? <laughs> Maybe three quid seventy-five. You're an FT journalist. I thought you got paid hundreds of thousands. There we go. What? <laughs> yeah, no. No. <laughs> no, that's LSE uh, professors, of course. Uh, you know. Hundreds of thousands of people. Okay. Um, I need yeah. to make one quick announcement. Ed, Ed is here not only to give a great speech, I'm sure you'll agree, but also to sell his book, which is on sale at a very reasonable price at the back there with the publisher and will be signed by Ed. And secondly, and also very nice to thank all you, and also particularly to thank Ed for an excellent speech and for an excellent discussion here this evening. Thank you very much indeed.